These are the things you must insist on and teach. Let no one despise your youth, but set the believers an example in speech and conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I arrive, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhorting, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift that is in you, which was given to you through prophecy with the laying on of hands by the council of elders. Put these things into practice. Devote yourself to them so that all may see your progress. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Continue in these things, for in doing this, you will save both yourself and your hearers. This is the word of God for the people of God. I have a very vivid memory. One night, right after I had gone to bed, I had just barely fallen asleep when the phone rang. It was after midnight. I was startled by the ringing phone when I answered it. It was my wife, Mary. She was trying to speak, but she was sort of stuttering. She would start and stop and start. I could tell there was something wrong really wrong I could make out just enough of what she was saying to know she needed help I had just left her less than an hour at the hospital she had just given birth to our first daughter grace she was going to stay one night there in the hospital with grace and the next morning I was going to pick her up but something had gone horribly wrong I jumped out of bed jumped back into my clothes raced to the hospital to find her still in the bed still having trouble speaking, and it just got worse and worse. In the next few hours, she lost all feeling in the right side of her body and lost the ability to speak. She was having a stroke. After the swelling in her brain went down in the next few days, most of the motor functions in the right side of her body returned but her speech did not. She went through months of speech therapy while her brain learned how to reorganize itself and rewire itself so that she could speak again. If you've been through a precarious situation in your life, oh, maybe not that, but something else which raised questions that made your future seem uncertain, I don't know if this was your experience, but it was certainly ours. More questions just keep coming up. What if this happens again? What if next time it's even worse? What are the risks if we want to have more children? Do we dare try to ever get pregnant again? And if we do... What if she has a stroke while she's pregnant? Then what about the child? Or even worse, what if she dies? What if, what if, what if? It can be paralyzing. To be in a situation where the future is uncertain and you've already had a bad experience and you're not sure what will happen 
the next day or week or month or year, all those questions stir around in your mind and it can be paralyzing. It can stop your life. It can ruin your life if you allow all the questions to paralyze you from then on. Barry Glasner is a sociologist. He's written a book entitled The Culture of Fear. In it, he says there are some things, of course, we should be afraid of. But he says there are so many other things that we are told to be afraid of that perhaps we should not give so much weight. He said it seems like media outlets want to tell us about all the scary things in the world because it gets ratings or organizations want us to give them money and they're dealing with something that's particularly terrifying or horrendous and so they try to motivate us through fear he recounts that one fellow did a analysis of different media reports in a six-month period he said this is what he found out in america there are 59 million people with heart disease 53 million suffering with migraines 25 million of us struggle with osteoporosis. 16 million of us obese. And he goes on and on. Glasner says, I added up all those numbers. It came to a shocking 543 million people in America with really serious health problems. But he says, you know what's more shocking? There were only 270 million Americans alive at the time of the reports. The reports, nearly twice as many people. Now, of course, some of those could be happening to the same person. But Glasner's point is this. His point is that fear in many guises is being hyped all around us all of the time and we have a job to sort out the realistic fears about safety and security from all the hype from all the media from all the people who are talking about it but perhaps have something personally to gain from scaring us a couple years after our first child was born and mary had the stroke she and i began to talk about would we have more children would we dare try to be pregnant again? One day she came to me after we had been talking and praying about that for some time, and she said, I will not let fear dictate my behavior. I am not going to live my life being afraid. We all have a choice to make. We all have to make a choice in the face of the ominous what-if kind of fears. Will we allow fear to rule our lives? Or as Christians, will we draw on the resources of our faith and believe and trust that God can lead us through whatever circumstance we find ourselves facing? Oh, certainly we have to be smart and want to be wise about risk and fear. But as people of faith, we also want to balance it with hope and trust in the Lord and believe that God will lead us if we will listen, that God will show us the way. 
we decided to try to be pregnant again. But, you know, we did a lot of research on Mary's condition. We looked around to find just the right doctor who specialized in these kinds of cases. We wanted the best help we could find. And, of course, we prayed seriously throughout all of that, believing that God could help us. We decided we were going to move forward with hope, even in the face of risk. We began to ask some different questions. What if nothing bad happened? What if she had a wonderful pregnancy? What if there were no complications and we had a beautiful baby? It changed our whole focus. She did get pregnant. We did have a baby. We decided before her birth that if we were to have a girl, that we would name her Hope. She would be our child of hope and remind us that God is a God of hope and love and mercy and that God is there to help us. Hope turned 21 in January. She is a reminder for our family that you can trust in the Lord, no matter what happens, that God can help lead you forward into the future. Attitude dictates so much of our experience in life. We all get to choose what we focus on. What do you focus on, the positive or the negative? Is your glass half full or half empty? It's a choice we all have to make. Do you let those questions that scare you paralyze you? Or do you utilize your faith to move forward even in the face of questions that are scary and risks that you might be encountering? So often, even Christians fail to use the resources of God through Christ that are offered to us, whether it's prayer or scripture reading or counseling with others in the family of Christ. All of those are resources that could help us move through our fears if we were willing to utilize them. Notice in our text today that we read from 1 Timothy that the bias is toward the positive side of things, even though there are perils all around listen again as paul writes to this younger colleague of his these are the things you must insist on and teach let no one despise your youth but set the believers an example in speech and conduct in love in faith in purity and then in verse 14 do not neglect the gift that is in you and another place Paul writes that each and every one of us are given gifts that God loves all of us and creates in such a way that all of us have gifts to share for the common good that we're given gifts but not just for our own glory for our own good but for the good of the community and Paul calls on us to use those within the body of Christ to build up the body. Paul's focus is on the good, on the creative. 
on the God who is alive and working for good in your lives. Are you focused on that? Are you open to that God working in your life? Are you ready to focus on the positive, even if you're struggling with some particular circumstance, even if you feel like you've stumbled or fallen recently, you're questioning yourself, are you willing to turn back toward God and open your heart and mind and say, God, help me now, lead me forward, heal this wound, lift me up? The Gospels proclaim that that's what God will do if we would open ourselves to God's love and mercy working in our life, if we'll open ourselves to God's grace being poured out upon us. Two stories I've read recently highlight the importance of using our gifts and yet show the complexity in discernment when actually practicing faith when actually trying to apply what we talk about on Sunday, what we read about in Scripture, what we proclaim that we believe, and actually trying to integrate those into our daily decisions. Let me share those two stories with you. Do you know the name Alvin York? I didn't know this name until I read about him recently. He became famous in World War I, not because... He came from a great military family or not because he went to West Point or because he rose through the ranks and was some kind of wonderful commander in general. In fact, he was a very common, ordinary kind of guy. He was born in Tennessee to a fairly poor family. He grew up and as a teenager began to work on the farm where he was born with his dad, sometimes worked as an unskilled laborer. Occasionally helped out the blacksmith in town. Very ordinary life. And then his father died when he was 24 years old. And somehow Alvin just couldn't overcome it. And he began to drink. He started getting in fights. He started gambling with the little bit of money that he had. And it just became a vicious spiral downward where his community began to talk about him and say he's never going to amount to anything. And the only thing he seemed to still enjoy that he had done with his father from the time he could walk was go hunting. And so if he had a day off and he was sober enough, he would go hunting. And in fact, he was a really good hunter. He was a sharp shooter. But his life was still spiraling out of control until New Year's Day, 1915. His mother had a heart-to-heart -heart talk with him, and he promised her that he was going to get better, that he was going to do better. Later that year, a friend invited him to a revival meeting. Old-time revival, we celebrate those here in July. Well, he went to one of those revivals, and he gave his life to Christ. And it really did change his life. People couldn't believe how much he changed. In all parts of his living, he truly became a man of God and one who was full of love and ready to serve others and 
stopped all the destructive behaviors and was really putting his life together. But in 1917, he received a draft notice to be inducted into the army to go fight in World War I. But as a Christian, he felt in conflict because he knew the Bible said, blessed are the peacemakers. And he felt like he shouldn't go to war. He recounted later how terrible it is to believe that God is leading you one way and let ha yet having an allegiance to your country that's drawing you in another way. While he was trying to figure out what to do, he registered as a conscientious objector, not wanting to shoot anyone or kill another human being. The U.S. government rejected his application to be a conscientious objector. Over those intervening weeks, he talked to his pastor. He talked to some army officers. He finally came to this conclusion that the Bible says, blessed are the peacemakers, but if he could help bring peace to the world through fighting, he should go. So he went to basic training, and then he was sent to the European theater. He was in the midst of a number of battles, but a faithful day came, October 8, 1918, it's why we know of Alvin York. His platoon wandered into a forest and all of a sudden were pinned down by enemy machine gun fire. His commander sent him and a small group to flank around and go behind the machine gun nest and see if they could take it out. So they went behind enemy lines before they ever got to the machine gun area they stumbled on to a group of 20 german soldiers that had set aside their guns to eat lunch they took them all as prisoners but as they advanced on the machine gun group those guns turned and swiveled and york recounts within seconds all of them all of his friends all of the americans were dead except for himself and seven others who were pinned down they had to figure out what to do and this is where alvin york's love of hunting and the fact that he had been a sharp shooter in tennessee came into play with so few resources he just focused on the bunker where the machine gun was and each time a german stood to shoot he would fire. Those who were there said he shot 17 times and killed 17 men. And he was out of ammunition and there were still people on the bunker. They say he pulled out his pistol and shot eight more times and killed eight more men. And none were left. But they were still behind enemy lines. And so York realized, even though he was only a corporal, that all the officers had been killed and he was in charge. And so he rallied his seven men and headed back toward friendly territory. Amazingly, each time they encountered other German 
soldiers. Somehow York rallied his seven, and they captured the Germans. And by the time they got back to friendly territory, they had 132 German prisoners of war. And people began to say Alvin York was the greatest soldier of all time. Next is Desmond Doss. He got a draft notice in 1942. He too registered as a conscientious objector because of his deep religious convictions. He told the army that he could not carry a gun, that he could not shoot a person, and he didn't think he would be much use in the military. They talked to him some more, and he ended up deciding that he could serve if they would put him in the medical corps. He could be a medic. He said he thought he could do that, that that would be consistent with his religious convictions because he wouldn't be killing people. He would be helping those who were wounded. So he went through basic training and he was sent to the Pacific Theater in the war. His group got caught in one particular battle where they were trapped up on a cliff where the backside was a 400-foot drop-off. The enemy were approaching. Most of the rest of his group, the 1st Battalion, were scattering to safer places. 